Welcome back to Series Regular, the Hollywood Reporter's deep dive podcast into genre television. I'm Josh Wigler, your host here on Series Regular. Last week, we stopped down to check the pulse of the Walking Dead franchise, which was an admittedly odd thing to do since zombies typically do not have pulses. Much more alive, though equally deadly and indeed deadlier in its own right, is the subject of this week's podcast, The Handmaid's Tale. Hulu's dark drama based on the 1985 novel of the same name by Margaret Atwood. Just as it feels odd to talk about checking the pulse with The Walking Dead, it does feel a bit odd to talk about The Handmaid's Tale as quote-unquote genre television since it often feels way too real. Premiering in 2017, Handmaid's takes place in a parallel dystopian future, but it's not one that's populated by flesh-hungry zombies or ice zombies or any other kind of zombie for that matter, just the monsters who lurk in the shadows of our own real world confidently and brazenly performing their acts of horror in the broad daylight of Gilead, the totalitarian nation once known as the United States of America. In Gilead, powerful men and their wives run households that operate largely thanks to live-in servants called Marthas, as well as women known as handmaids, who are used primarily for breeding purposes. These women are given new names in Gilead, of the last name of whoever they serve. In the case of The Handmaid's Tale's titular handmaid, the woman at the heart of the story is initially known to us as Offred, played to award-winning heights by Elizabeth Moss. These days, she's no longer Offred. And frankly, she never really was. My name is June. With multiple Emmy Awards to its name, including winning the Outstanding Drama Series category in 2017, not to mention 26 episodes already under its belt heading into 2019, the odds are high that The Handmaid's Tale is already on your radar. But perhaps it isn't. Or perhaps it was, and it's since fallen off your radar. Featuring subject matter that hits devastatingly close to home, Handmaid's often blurs the line between fictional twists and turns and actual real-world headlines. It's a prescient show, brutally so, and as such, a really difficult story to contend with and actively choose to keep up with. But those who have kept up with The Handmaid's Tale have been rewarded with one of the most powerfully acted and sharply written dramas currently available in the vast landscape of modern television, in my humble and hyperbolic opinion. Your mileage may vary, but to my mind, through the four episodes available as of this recording, season three of The Handmaid's Tale more than lives up to the dark heights of the roughly two dozen hours that encompass seasons one and two. Please, God, watch over her. Protect her. Because this isn't the place with the still waters and green pastures, if you haven't noticed. This is the Valley of Death, and there's a fuck ton of evil to fear. Please, get her the hell out of here. The Handmaid's Tale launched its third season on June 5th, pushing out into the night with three brand new episodes, including, well, Night, which begins immediately after season two's cliffhanger ending. 
June was given an opportunity to escape Gilead, but declined in the 11th hour, opting instead to stay behind in order to search for her daughter, Hannah. What complicates the otherwise simple matter of a parent doing whatever it takes to save her child is this. June has another child, Holly, now known by her Gilead name of Nicole, born in season two. Instead of escaping with the baby in the season two finale, June instead passed baby Nicole over to Emily, a fellow handmaid played by Alexis Bledel, and left the two of them to escape to Canada. An outcome that, in the moment, is far from certain. If she gets out, will she remember me? Will she know that I gave her away? I have reasons. There are always reasons. I'm sorry, baby girl. Mom's got work. At the time of the season two finale's release, the choice to have June stay behind in Gilead while sending her infant daughter off into an unknown future was met with decidedly mixed reactions, to put it lightly. THR's very own TV critic and occasional series regular special guest star Daniel Feinberg described the episode at the time as, quote-unquote, a case of brilliant acting and frustrating storytelling. That's one of the more measured examples of responses to June's choice. For what it's worth, the season three premiere does not shy away from those same questions, with multiple characters openly questioning June's choice. Are you insane? You didn't get in the truck. Thoughts? Did you give her to off Joseph? I did what was best for her, Serena. Did you give my baby to off Joseph? You wanted a better life for her, and that is what a mother does for her child. Gave her to a murderer. You killed my baby. You killed my baby. How could you take her away from me? Because I have another daughter. You chased us in the woods, and you hunted us down with dogs. And when you pulled her away, she screamed. My baby screamed for her mother. And I hope this feels like that. What's wrong with you? Do you know people risked their lives tonight to get you out? Jesus, Jim. You're so fucking selfish. There won't be another chance, you know that? You're never getting out. You're gonna fucking die here. I know that. Don't you think I fucking know that? Recently, I spoke with Handmaid's creator Bruce Miller about how the reaction to June's choice at the end of season two fueled the creative behind season three. The reaction to the finale was mild compared to the vociferous arguments we had in the writer's room, according to Miller. He added that there was fierce debate for both choices, getting in the car and driving off toward Canada to find a way to save Hannah from a distance, or going with what the show ultimately went with, having June stay behind in Gilead. Here's how he explained June's decision. Quote, June has lived in a world where things that she has been told are impossible have happened. You'll never see your child again. She saw her child again. You'll never be in contact with your husband. She's been in contact with her husband. You'll never make love to anybody ever again. She found a boyfriend. There are all of these impossible things. When you think of June standing there, if someone says, why won't you leave? You have no chance of surviving here if you stay. No chance of helping your daughter. But I would say that's not her experience. 
Her experience has been through savvy, smarts, empathy, and some good luck, making some incredible progress, and certainly more progress than Luke has made. She knows from the outside it's not so easy to help, and from the inside, she's had success. I don't think it's a dumb decision, but it's a hard decision. End quote. Whether you buy into Miller's logic, and therefore June's logic, will very much inform whether you can buy into the third season of the series, but at the very least... The season premiere has June's choice to stay in Gilead, bear some blessed fruit. First, in the form of a brief reunion with her daughter Hannah, and eventually an encounter with the woman who fancies herself as Hannah's new mother, Mrs. Mackenzie, played by Amy Landecker of Transparent fame. I appreciate the home you've made for her. Thank you. Please, stop. You know all of this ends with you dying on the ground in front of her. If you love her, you have to stop. Praise be. She has your eyes. Truly is a miracle. I'm her mother. The other big victory is that June's actions over the past several episodes have basically led to a huge divide between the two people who have lorded over her every waking move in Gilead, Commander Fred and Serena Waterford, played by Joseph Fiennes and Ivan Strahovski. Their marriage, already frayed, all but burns to the ground alongside the rest of the Waterford house when it's set on fire by Serena, grieving the loss of baby Nicole who she helped June sneak out of Gilead, even if she didn't fully appreciate the terms of that choice. For her part, June very much appreciates Serena's choice to burn the Waterford house down, as she so eloquently explains near the end of the season premiere. Lord Jesus, be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, thou shalt take vengeance. Burn, motherfucker. Burn. Speaking with The Hollywood Reporter, here's what Moss said about the decision to burn down the Waterford house and break up the family structure at the heart of the series. Quote, The far more conventional thing to do would have been to somehow stay in that Waterford house. I honestly do not know how we would have figured out how to do that. It would be pretty cheesy and bad. I love that we move on and really move on. I mean, we burned down the house. That's a set that we don't have anymore. We'll never, ever go back to it. It's gone. It's pretty bold to take your main set, your main family, your main characters, and the world that we've gotten used to for the first two seasons and literally wipe it out and burn it down. But that's the kind of thing I think that this show has enabled us to do because there are no rules like that. End quote. Unfortunately... There are still rules for June to follow in Gilead. Even though she's out of Commander Waterford's house, she's not out of the commander system, reassigned to serve as handmaid to a very odd, very volatile man named Commander Joseph Lawrence, played by the West Wing alum Bradley Whitford. Indeed, we've already heard from him on this podcast. Are you insane? And indeed, we had already met the man in season two, serving as commander to Emily. He's at least partly responsible for smuggling Emily out of Gilead and into Canada, and would have been responsible for June's escape as well, if not for June's choice to hang back. But he's not an entirely benevolent man. He's a complicated man, and at times, 
a nasty one. Do you want to know why I helped Emily? I think you felt guilty. I think you felt sorry for her. You want me to feel guilty and sorry for you? Do you? I helped Emily because she is unnaturally smart and could be useful to the world one day. If you were smart, you would have gotten on that truck. You know why I couldn't. I think I care more about your daughter than you do. I'm saving the planet for her. I'm replenishing the human race for her. What are you doing? I am trying to be her mother. She has a mother. You met Mrs. McKenzie? She's a lovely woman. She never stole anybody's husband. Do you know that she organized a thousand food baskets for orphans in Africa back when there were orphans? What did you ever do to help anyone? Except edit esoteric, useless books that no one was ever going to read instead of picking up your sick daughter from school. Useless. Clearly, Lawrence is a very different animal from Waterford. And clearly, he knows a lot about June if only surface details he can glean from reading her file. Whatever else he is, Lawrence is thorough and intelligent, with his theories on economics directly leading to several of the systems that power Gilead, including the colonies, an irradiated swath of the nation where the people who work rarely come back alive. You wrote esoteric books. You did that. God, it must be scary. Huh? Seeing the numbers on those spreadsheets turn into real people? Real people being executed? Knowing that if no one had read your books, we would all be better off. It must be hell being a man like that. Far worse than useless. You know what? I get it. I get why you would do this. I suppose you would hole yourself up in a house like this playing games with people's heads, doing a good deed or two every once in a while so that you can fucking sleep at night. How tempting it is to invent a humanity for anyone at all. Both Miller and Moss have described the relationship between June and Lawrence as central to the remainder of season three, and it's pretty easy to see why. Following their very candid confrontation in season three's third episode, Useful, which you just heard bits and pieces of, Lawrence brings June to see a large group of women who are bound for the colonies, all save for five, though he has yet to choose the specific individuals who are going to stay behind. In fact, he has no plans to make that choice himself. You get to choose who is worthy of becoming a Martha. You'll have all the information you need, names, ages, occupations, academic attainments, moral stains. That's dumb. Who gets to define morality? Just choose the best people for the job. No. I thought you might enjoy being useful for once. None of them deserves to die. What if I told you if you don't choose, they all die? 
I am not responsible for their deaths. You are. Gilead is. The technical distinction that won't mean anything to these women. But I can see it's important to you. And that's more important than anything else, isn't it? I'm not doing it. I won't. In the end, she does. The following morning, June tells Lawrence that she's selected five women to serve as Martha's and therefore join the resistance of women fighting against Gilead from within. An engineer, an IT tech, a journalist, a lawyer, and a thief. We do not meet these women by the end of the episode, nor have we met them through episode four, called God Bless the Children, but we may well meet them in the future. Because to hear Moss tell it, the June we'll see throughout season three is one who will be fighting tooth and nail, not only for Hannah, but for all those wronged by Gilead. Here's how she described the overall tone of the season to me. Quote, I think it's a much more complicated season. I've found seasons in the past have been easier to speak about sometimes because there's sort of one objective. There's one arc. There's almost a simplicity to some of the ideas. Now, what's really cool for us is we get to explore things that are a little bit more complicated. June's been there for a few years. She's changed. She's not the person that walked into Gilead anymore, and we're very clear about showing that. I could almost talk about the first half of the season as one season and the second half as another. There's a real change in the second half of the season that is pretty huge character-wise. It allowed me to do some things as an actor with June that I think are going to be really surprising and pretty extreme. We're asking the audience to come with us on this ride. But what we're trying to do, and what I'm trying to do, is show the person that you would become if you lived in that system for that long, and you had seen the things that you had seen, and you had done the things that you've done, and the things that had been done to you, and how that would change you. You wouldn't be the same person. But in order to lead the resistance, and in order to be the person that does that, and that is fearless and ruthless and strong enough, maybe you have to change. End quote. Sounds like pretty significant changes are ahead for both June and The Handmaid's Tale writ large. Four episodes of The Handmaid's Tale Season 3 are currently available on Hulu, with a new episode dropping every Wednesday. The future of the season includes a trip to Washington, D.C. in the sixth episode, a harrowing corner of The Handmaid's World that the creative team refers to as Gilead on steroids. You have been warned. For much more on The Handmaid's Tale, head to THR.com slash Handmaid's Tale for all of our interviews with cast and crew, including one piece coming soon that details the ways in which The Handmaid's Tale writers work in close concert with the United Nations to build the show's frightening level of realism. As always, thanks for listening to this week's series regular. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or however you get your podcasts. And please be sure to leave us a rating and review. Send your feedback into us at seriesregular at thr.com or tweet my way at Round Howard. We'll be back soon with another episode of the podcast. Until then, take care.